welcome to Wes and conversations about the films of Wes Anderson. My name is Will. I'm here with Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Will. Wait, How where's our you? name? Where's our fun name? This is episode eight of Wes and, and it is called Isle of Pods, <laughs> as in podcasts. Wouldn't it be episode nine? Uh, yes. Sorry, episode nine. You're um, for for some reason, I need to be dragged, uh, kicking and screaming into this uh, episode of the podcast. <laughs> I don't, don't understand why. Um, it's, hey, it's almost it, like we've been running purely on adrenaline for a week and are loopy as shit. I don't. I don't know what that's like. Um, <laughs> never experienced that. Certainly not recently, and certainly not today. Sunday, November eighth, uh, twenty twenty. <laughs> Uh, which is when we are recording this. <sighs> yeah. Uh, how you been? Good now. Better? Better. I, yeah. um, if it's not clear, I wanted Biden to win. <laughs> mm. Well, yes. I, once, yes. And, and me too, once it came down to Biden and Trump. Yes. For this particular presidential election that was on Tuesday, mm-hmm. I wanted yeah. Biden to win out of the two main candidates. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, uh, was very nervous. I was nervous about things like my bodily autonomy, um, the, like, legal marriage of my friends who are, have the same genitals and identify with those genitals with their gender. And, um, I really went out of my way. I did a really good job on election night. On mm-hmm. election night. I turned off my phone at seven, got mildly intoxicated, and slept great, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then proceeded to wake up every morning at 5 a.m., bolt upright, and, like, would check my phone. Yeah. And it was just excruciating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, I don't feel huge amounts of empathy for people who wanted to vote for Trump. But I will say, I'd have to imagine that they, this is something that we both felt the same way about. I feel like we both must have felt that this was, for like that Wednesday, Thursday time period, excruciating. Mm, mm-hmm. Like waiting. Sure. Um, so yeah, but you know, the numbers are looking strong now. Of course, um, it's not official yet because the Electoral College hasn't voted, but the mar- the margins are there. And, there was uh, a victory speech. There was a victory speech. Um, there was also a meeting um, at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. <laughs> yes, where we are coming to you live from. <laughs> it just—it looked so good that I booked it for this episode. <laughs> um, which I know, I, I know, I know, we've spoken at length about how we have differing opinions on SNL, but I did see a tweet that was like. On Saturday morning after AP called the election, I did see a tweet that was like, shout out to the SNL writers that are rewriting their cold open for the 18th time this week. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they must have. Uh, Hopefully they, they had must have been options. They must have been writing multiple. Yeah, multiple yeah. options. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's still. Yes, that's a funny thing to say. Um, yeah, uh, every every like once every few months, somebody I follow on Twitter graciously reminds me 
of the time that Donald Trump hosted Saturday Night Live in 2015. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I feel very uh satisfied. I feel like yes, that's that's right. I am on the right side of history on this issue. <laughs> um I don't I don't need to be part of the national conversation yeah. about what they are doing week to week. More people need to not tune in like I do. <laughs> Did you see changing subjects to other funny things? Did you see yeah. the meme that I made with Blake's help? Yes, the Lord of the Rings meme. Yeah. Yes, very good. I was so pleased with myself with my ex. I mean, it was Blake's concept, but I was so pleased with my execution of it. You you executed it very well. <laughs> we'll link that in the show notes. Yes, it's just as good or better than the Avengers Endgame uh video yes that was going around twitter which i which i have to say i am on the side that that was made for satirical comedic purposes like the 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 person who made that knew that they were doing something funny Mm -hmm. uh and and you need to look no farther than like sean connery (laughs) is on there (laughs) at the same time that that rbg is that's Mm -hmm. That's a very funny execution of the concept of what if a dumb person uh, made this meme. So you're, um, you saw the one where the heads were replaced? Yeah. I saw two versions of this. Okay. I saw one where the heads were replaced late last night. I saw another one where it just had like words over oh. each person. Yeah. And that one didn't have like RBG and like John McCain weirdly. <laughs> Right, right. Which, I mean, there's a certain category of person who would not think that that is so weird. And mm-hmm. that that's what makes it so funny yeah. to me. Um, honestly, it, so I've been sleeping very peacefully in my giant bed of privilege um, uh-huh. for, the, for the past week. And um, uh, what, the only thing that has really like gotten my goat a little bit mm-hmm. is when I've seen multiple tweets referencing Arizona going blue by saying, oh, uh, one of the reasons that Trump lost re-election was because he pissed off John McCain lovers. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to which I go like, okay, yeah, I get what you're doing here. Yes, I, I see, I've seen the narrative, um, but it just, it, it hits home for me personally. <laughs> Because yeah. <laughs> so okay, yes, me voting for Biden in Arizona because I loved God rest his soul John McCain <laughs> so much. <laughs> I will say something that I was very pleased about, which I'm sure you are aware of, is just like you know I love Pennsylvania so much. Um, I did a whole episode on it, and mm-hmm. um, it's like it like wasn't. Pennsylvania specifically that won the election it just was like the last state that came in if that makes sense it was the last domino that fell yeah but by the same token oh I love to see Pennsylvania memes of people just celebrating Pennsylvania and I like was so sad that I couldn't be like in in the city of Harrisburg or even in like even like drunk on the mall in DC like if the pandemic Mm. wasn't happening Mm -hmm. um my our our friend of the pod Aram found out when she was running and like she runs like from the Virginia side into DC and then runs back because yeah. uh, she runs like a lot like many miles 
And she said that, like, as she was coming back, all the roads started getting blocked off. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it was like she ran there. She found out while she was running. She came back and all of the um, roads were blocked off, like, within, like, you know, an hour or something. Yeah. Um, Which is wild to think about. But yes, I, of course, would not go out and celebrate um, among people because we are still in a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the harsh reality. One of many. Yes. Underlying the uh, moment of relief that we're uh, enjoying. Mm -hmm. There's still so many people dead. Oh, um, I have some old business. Okay. Business. Nathan's um, pre-orders for his album started on Friday. Yes, roof beams. Roof beams. Um, so I bought the bundle, so I'll have a new t-shirt, which is good. Because nice. weirdly, the only roof beams... I mean, they haven't put out a lot of t-shirts recently, but like in high school, they had t-shirts like pretty consistently. And weirdly, the only t-shirt I have is one that my friend Tara Toms gave me that's from before I even started listening to roof beams, which is like... Mm. I mean, now mm-hmm. we're going back, right? And right. it's got a, it's a screen print of a like old timey camera shooting a bullet. Uh huh. <laughs> and she had cut the sleeves off of it and also cut like a little V at the top. Mm-hmm. And she was like, "I don't really want the shirt, but you love them more than I do." And I was like, "I would love the shirt." And I I wear that shirt still, but that's the only roof beam shirt I have. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, you should you should um pre order pre order it. He um recorded all the songs. Um uh remotely with his band so they all recorded the track separately and then he mixed them and it's um i the first song that came out is good i do have a really deep cut that i think you'll appreciate that i can't say for certain Mm -hmm. is my fault but i think that it might be sure so he had released a song on youtube um which is the title track to the album um there's a lyric in it that says, this life must be long, and the title of the album is This Life Must Be Long. He's done this before where a lyric that isn't the name of the song is the name of the album. Right. Which I think is great. Yep. But I was listening to the song, and I was like, wait, there's, I think this song is another song. And so I went on YouTube, and lo and behold, the song that he had posted on YouTube was called The Con. And it was the same song that was now called This Life Must Be Long. So he, now the title of the song is also the title of the album. Uh And I was looking at this and I was like, oh no. Because when he had posted that video, he had done a live stream and I had said, I thought you had posted a Tegan and Sarah cover. Yeah, right. (laughs) And I think that he was caught off guard by this. Yes, yeah, understandably. (laughs) And so I think he may have changed the name of the song to what he was then going to call the album. Yeah. I don't know the exact order, but the song is Mm -hmm. still on YouTube as The Con, and it's on Bandcamp as This Life Must Be Long, so... Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you you definitely brought that to his attention. Maybe you're not the only person. I was definitely the first person. Maybe he made that change after he kept getting that uh, remark from different people, (gasps) but... uh, yeah, he should he should know. The Con is one of my all-time favorite albums. Tegan and Sarah's The Con. It's very good. I have breaking news. Breaking news. Do 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 do. Alex Trebek died. Oh no. I know. Auden just oh. messaged me. Oh shit. Shoot. Uh we've been like 
watching old episodes of Jeopardy on Netflix lately. Yeah. That uh, that's too bad. That's yeah. a real, fuck, man. That's a yeah. That's I wasn't a real expecting shame. this. No, yeah, I thought thought we had a, at least a few more years. Oh my god, Jesus! Well, okay. That's sad. <laughs> Jesus that's sad. Christ. I um, I heard. I, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Who was the guy? Ken Jennings. Yeah. I heard an interview with him on NPR where somebody had asked him, do you think that you would be good as the next host of Jeopardy? Yeah. And he said, I will not answer that question because I will not admit that Alex Trebek could die. Yeah, understandably. Um, I mean, definitely a lot of people uh, have had that conversation I think he's probably the first pick in a lot of people's minds. Mm -hmm. Personally, I hope that doesn't happen. But who do you uh, want to be host? I no no one in preferably no one I've ever heard of. Yeah, and then and then and then they they turn out to be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I don't. But who knows? It'll be like Alec Baldwin or something, and and it'll (laughs) piss me off. Do you know oh, how Lord. many game shows that I don't even know? I have not watched a single one of them. But do you are you aware at all of this like game show <clears throat> resurrection phenomenon? Like Alec Baldwin hosts Match Game. You know what? I guess I have seen ads for that when we're watching The Masked Singer. Joel McHale hosts Card Sharks. I've not seen that, no. <laughs> Which I think is a, a, a like a joke from 30 Rock, but but uh not not literally. I'm just saying it sounds like that. Uh you know, bringing back card sharks and yeah. making Joel McHale the host of it. Um but, I see yeah, Joel McHale sure. fairly regularly cuz he's on the Masked Singer like every season, sometimes like two or three times. That's cool. Wasn't Sarah Palin on the Masked Singer? Yes, as a cool. masked creature another another show i am glad to have never watched it was it's it's that was confusing that particularly (laughs) we really like the mass singer it's like it's just like you're trying to solve a mystery and i also really like ken jong is the other thing he's Mm -hmm. very funny and um sincere dr Um, ken yeah the titular um, Dr. Ken. And uh and uh I like Nick Cannon too. <laughs> yeah. Though I also well, I also really like how they always make jokes that they think it's Mariah Carey. I'll just take your word for that. But can I tell you the one thing that I'm waiting for? Uh Sean Spicer? I'm <laughs> I am waiting. Sarah Huckabee Sanders? No, no, not a person. Mike Pence? <laughs> I am waiting for someone to sing their own song. Mm-hmm. Because they're gonna do it at some point, because sure. they've set it up now as something that doesn't happen, right? So at some point it will happen, mm-hmm. and I am just waiting. That I, I, I look forward to that day for you. Thank you. When when you will? No. Um, but that day's not today. No, uh, I'm feeling very sassy uh, this morning. <laughs> yeah, how could you not? 
I, uh, I don't have any old business of my own, which is for the best because we have a, a very important topic to discuss mm-hmm. and, and a f- very important question uh, to explore. Yeah. Uh, and that question is, how many ways can two podcasters avoid talking about the film Isle of Dogs? <laughs> Um, this is, uh, this is Wes Anderson's, uh, latest released movie. Yes. Um, which, uh, is, uh, just, just kind of puts a whole, puts a slight damper, uh, or maybe a significant damper on, on the whole exercise. Um, I, I, I have hope that this would be, uh, a lot more fun uh, in the end if we could have seen uh, the French Dispatch. Yeah, by I know now. what you mean. Um, just so we'd have uh, something to uh, rebound mm-hmm. uh, from I Love Dogs with. Yeah. But uh, as it is, uh, I Love Dogs is the last uh, feature film that we're going to discuss. And then we are going to rebound uh, next week by talking about some short films and, and other um ephemera if that's a a fair enough word to use yeah i think ephemera is good for this for the purpose of what we're doing Mm -hmm. so um do you uh have any introductory remarks about uh when and how you've seen isle of dogs and and your relationship with this movie so isle of dogs when did isle of dogs come out 2018 yeah two years ago so I love a, dogs. A, a, a year which on this podcast I have gone on the record as saying was a, a whack year at the movies. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I Love Dogs came out in March of 2018. So, I mean, this was like, um, you know. You had a baby. I had a baby. <laughs> you were not seeing movies. I was not seeing a lot of movies. Um, I feel like I wasn't super super excited about this one at the time yeah and so i knew it was coming out but i sort of felt you know whatever about it and then um i never i just never saw it just because i never got a chance like there was no real good way to see it yeah um i also like i've bought so many like because we're in quarantine kenny and i have have spent more money like on renting movies Mm-hmm. than we ever have before. Yeah. Because before, instead of watching a movie, in theaters or not, we would, like, go outside. <laughs> right. Go to the mall. Like, go to the mall, like, in the winter, just, like, walk around with Elliot inside. Yeah. Um, Or, like, I think all the time about how there's this place near here called Rio, which is this big pond, and then there's, like, a bunch of businesses, but you can, like, walk around the pond, and there's, like, a carousel and a playground. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's do that, you know? Um, And so at the time, my point is we weren't really in the mode of, oh, right, we can pay a fairly small amount of money (laughs) to watch a movie. Yeah. Um, uh, Dana and I have had a similar experience, but sort of for a different reason. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's not that we were doing the things that you were doing. It's just that for a long stretch of time, we just mostly limited it ourselves to what was available exactly yeah on the streaming platforms we had access to because there's plenty there mm-hmm. um and uh it wasn't until more recently 
that we've watched more movies at home and we've kind of bent towards let's just watch whatever we most want to watch. Yeah. Even if that means paying three or four dollars to be able to watch it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly that was also part of our mindset where we was like, well, why would we pay for something when we could watch something else for free? Right. <laughs> Unless we like but now, you know, with this especially too. So um, that said, the first time I watched this, I watched it as a rental from the library. And it was a couple mm-hmm. months ago. And it mm-hmm. was the first movie that I had. It was right when the library started um, doing service again. Yeah. And this was the first thing we watched because I had never seen it. And then I watched it again uh, last night and this morning. So uh, what was your reaction on your first viewing? I... My first viewing, I just remember feeling not that excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to investigate this because I know I had talked to you about this last week. I don't mm-hmm. know if it was off camera or off camera, yeah. <laughs> off mic or not. Yeah. And so this week I was like, why didn't I like this movie? Because technically it's stunning. Yes. And I realized why. I'm going to go back in time a little bit here. When I was a kid, there were a lot of cartoons I just never watched. Mm-hmm. So, like, I never watched, like, Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Mm. I never watched um, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't watch them is because I felt so uncomfortable watching them. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out that I have really pretty sh- – I mean, now as an adult, it's, like, you know, not as – you know, I'm an adult, so whatever. But, like, I have pretty strong emotional reactions to um, animation styles. Mm-hmm. And I really like clean, bright animation styles. Yeah. So, I like, Adventure Time is, like, candy to me. Well, you're in luck because <laughs> everything is Adventure Time now. Exactly. And that's Everything very... is either Adventure Time or Rick and Morty. Yes, and Rick and Morty was basically already a subset of Family Guy. Exactly. And, and I'm talking know, about animation styles here. And I know that, like, that's what's very popular, and I can see why people would want to, like, reject that and everything. But my point is, is that, like, that's so pleasing to me. Like, I had said, mm-hmm. to, like, Auden had said, like, oh, yeah, I stopped watching Adventure Time because, like, the plot I got weird. And I was like, I don't give a <laughs> shit about plot with Adventure Time. <laughs> It's funny because that's that is what I care about most, and and for Adventure Time has been off the air for a little while now. Yeah, I didn't stick with it um, through its whole run. There were it was there was just too much of it. There's but, so there's so much of it. We we come back to it every now and then, and then forget about it for a while, and then come back to it. But when I enjoyed it, it was like first initially the hook was like. Oh, the humor and the dialogue are are so weird. It's unlike anything I've uh, watched See, before. Yeah. And then um, beyond that hook, the the thing that uh, made me stay for a long time was oh, there's all this uh, world building um, going on, and like sometimes you know oh, there's like serialization. Show up later, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the the if I ever I've been sort of going back and forth like am i ever gonna bother to find out like what happened on adventure time and that's what i'm curious about i i I don't love 
the style or the humor so much that I just, you know, need to get back into that world. Mm. I'm just, I'm really curious about like, I would like to see like a playlist of like just the plot heavy episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Uh, and and watch and watch those to to catch up. Yeah. So, which is, I mean, also a perfectly legitimate way to watch that. Um, but yeah. So, which is to say that, like, and like Archer too. I love Archer is like a similar in that it's got like really distinct lines. <laughs> you you know my feeling about Archer. Yeah, I know you don't like Archer, but I'm talking about the animation style. Yes. Like, all of those things make me feel, like, visually make me feel pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I also just don't like, like, Battlestar Galactica is another great example. Mm. I love Battlestar Galactica now. But when it was on air, Blake was watching it weekly. And I just, well, I wasn't going to stay up late enough to watch it anyway, because I think it went from, like, 10 to 11 or something. Or even 9 to 10 would have been too late. But it, it was on later than I was willing to watch. And, um... I for so long just couldn't get into it because it's all grays and, you know, dark blues and yeah. um, it just makes me feel cold. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why I wasn't super excited about Isle of Dogs, at least just from like, because so much of what we talk about with Wes Anderson is aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. And this movie, which is so beautiful technically, just like I feel like could be more beautiful if there was color. <laughs> mm -hmm. But in general, they spend, you know, most of the time we spend with the dogs is on a literal trash island. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's in, it's it's just really intense to see, you know, an overhead shot of a bunch of tiny pieces of paper flapping in the wind. Mm -hmm. But also, they're all white. <laughs> yeah. And so that was my sort of first, I think that's part of the reason why this movie, like even just looking at the cover of it, like the only color on, like the only sort of bright color on the, um, not the cover, but the poster is yeah. the red of the text. Right. And I, and also, and this is, you know, we'll talk more about Japan as we go on, of course, but like, I clearly have never been to Japan. And also, um, I am not like a huge Japanophile, mm -hmm. but I feel like every time I see imagery from Japan, like the landscape is beautiful. And then if you're in like Tokyo, like if you're one of the big cities, it's like everything is like neon. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that this movie is in Japan, but like somehow does isn't like taking advantage for the most part of like sort of the deeply rich, gorgeous parts. Yeah. of japan feels like that sucks <laughs> yeah i think that that's fair enough i don't have exactly the same reading as you do my my feeling when i watch the movie is why yeah if you added it all if you add up the number of minutes sure we spend the most time on trash island but there's a lot of cutting back to megasaki city yeah and i think that Megasaki City is sort of a blend of w what you are looking for, mm -hmm. what you just described. And the reason it's not purely that is that it has kind of like a Blade Runner aesthetic. Oh, okay. Because it's like always nighttime and, mm. and uh, tw you know, 20 years in the future. 
Um, so I think it, ha- I, I think it has that, but, um, you obviously want more of it. But. And, and also, I just want to say that clearly anytime we're most of the time when we're critical of things like this, it's an opinion. This right. I deeply, deeply understand is my opinion. If somebody mm-hmm. feels differently than me, I'm like, that makes complete sense to me. I mean, that's yeah. just purely. It's your like, preference. A preference thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that this is like a right or wrong by any standards. Right. Thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that aesthetic level. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, let me tell you, uh, just let me take you on a short roller coaster ride through uh, my thoughts and feelings about this movie. Yeah. Uh, it starts before I saw it, when I just heard about it. You know, news breaks. Uh, Wes Anderson's next movie is another stop motion animation movie. It's about dogs. It's called Isle of Dogs. And it's uh, set in Japan. And I was uh, skeptical. I was not excited by that news. Um, obviously, the Japan thing uh, raises a red flag immediately, mm-hmm. just hearing about it in theory. And then also um, st- stop motion animation about dogs. Um, it sort of felt to me like um uh, if, if it felt like not different enough from fantastic mr fox i took I, I took a screenshot of nutmeg on the top of a thing that looks yeah. almost exactly it's basically the exact same shot as the wolf mm-hmm. yeah so so i heard about it and i thought uh, haven't we already seen this before um then it the movie came out and i went to see it obviously I wanted to see it because I'll see whatever he makes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I uh, uh, loved it, uh, seeing it in the theater. Um, I loved it uh, from the moment uh, at the beginning with the uh, drum sequence yes. yeah. uh, for the opening credits. I loved that. That got me hook, line, and sinker um, so thoroughly and immediately that in my memory, that was exactly that was how the movie started mm-hmm. then i rewatched it the other night and actually there's a prologue before that oh right which, yeah which my first specific criticism i'll i'll make is that i think you could lose that prologue and i think that would be an improvement mm-hmm. uh for the movie but anyway um I saw plenty of movies in 2018 and um didn't have the most thrilling time um like uh, I, in comparison to the year before and the year after last mm-hmm. year, I was a little more engaged and a little more enthralled. Um, and uh, Isle of Dogs was the new Wes Anderson movie. As you said, it was it it's visually stunning, um, and uh, the story uh, I found to be uh, moving. Mm-hmm. And so it was my favorite film of the year. And I gave it five stars on Letterboxd and I ranked it number one for 2018. Um, And uh, I can stand by that as specifically not how I feel today, but how I felt when I I did that. Totally fine. Right. So especially when it was a whack year for movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and it's it goes back to preference. Yeah. When I make a ranked list uh, for the year on, on Letterboxd, I'm I'm 
that's an expression of my personal preferences um, for for what I, what I enjoy the most being me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not a reflection of of what I actually think if I were trying to be quote unquote objective. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's better than anything else? Like for example, number five I think on that list is Into the Spider Verse. Oh right, yeah. In a lot of ways, I could admit Into the Spider Verse is a better movie than Isle of Dogs, and it, and and in fact, they were both nominated in the animated feature category at the Academy Awards, and Into the Spider Verse won, and that is well deserved, and I'm and I'm glad that that happened. That movie, I feel like I need to watch frame by frame. Like each frame feels like something that could hang on a wall. Yeah, I would be very happy to rewatch Into the Spider Verse. I just personally, I don't happen to rewatch a lot of movies these days because yeah. there are so many movies I haven't seen yeah. that I want to spend my time watching instead. Um, but yeah, one of these days, um, I'm going to be very happy to rewatch Into the Spider Verse. Um, so, uh, Isle of Dogs, though, um, it has to be acknowledged. Um, is is a movie that I am able to enjoy as much as I did um, because it, it was made for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I am in the, the seat of privilege that this uh, Anglo-centric movie um, made by a white American filmmaker um, w- that... that that uh, the, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the intent. I'm not only the main audience, like in other cases, like, oh, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy the Marvel movies. They're like mainly made for me, but they're really made for everyone. Like mm-hmm. they're the, the, you know, big studio, like Marvel movies, they're made so that like the maximum number of people will see them, like them, enjoy them, keep coming back for more. Um, and I just happen to be like, at the top of the hierarchy of, yeah, yeah. of uh, you know, demographics. Um, in this case, you and you and I, like as as white Americans, like we, we are. It's it's more than just a hierarchy. It's like we're the main audience, and then everything else is like just so secondary that like they didn't even think about it. Yeah. Or or that's the way it seems. Um. So uh, I rewatched this movie and I I can't deny that I really enjoy watching it. Mm-hmm. And that's mainly for the visual spectacle. Um, it's also because I think it's funny and I think that the story is, um, I still think the story is, is moving. It, it's effective in that uh, emotional sort of a way. Um, at the same time, um, my my enjoyment of the film is is tempered by two things mm-hmm. which is uh the uh problematic uh obvious reasons mm-hmm. and also the story i real i observed there's like a core core story about atari and chief yeah that i think is very effective and that's mm-hmm. what i gravitate towards but that's that's only part of the story and considering the story as a whole i find it to be very sloppy oh that's interesting 
And I think that this is, I'm, I'm going to say, I think this is the one Wes Anderson movie where I will entertain the argument that this is style over substance. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is, which is sort of the, a common, you know, if you're a mm-hmm. Wes Anderson skeptic, you, you, you might be inclined to say that what the films he makes, it's all style, no substance. It's just flash for flash's sake. There's no beating heart uh, underneath the surface or, or, or no complicated, you know, worthy of attention, like mm-hmm. intellectual concepts uh, underneath the surface. Um, there's a part in the center of this movie, which is just the, the emotions you feel for Atari and Chief and Spots. Um, but... Uh, as far as that question that my friend raised, we talked about last week about Grand Budapest Hotel, like what is it actually about? Mm-hmm. That question to me, there there are times when the movie is signaling what is supposed to be the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm talking about like theme here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those times are when, so just real quick, again, for context, in it, when we talked about Fantastic Mr. Fox, we talked about how like the movie stops mm-hmm. at multiple times so that Mr. and Mrs. Fox can have a conversation and they're talking about, you know, the thematic core of the film, like, or, you know, nostalgia for the old glory days. Can you recapture that when you have a family to take care of now? Are we it's really a, domesticated or are we wild animals? Right, exactly. And and being selfish and, and overcoming that. Um, the times when this movie stops, it stops for Chief to talk about his history of violence. Mm-hmm. And my opinion is that, that it, 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 it doesn't really jive it, it doesn't really go anywhere and it doesn't really jive with the rest of the movie mm-hmm. in the way that the thematic concerns of the other movies um feel earned yeah and and like completely thought out and this movie feels a little and i'm talking about on the story level kind of thrown together yeah that makes complete sense and where, like, a lot of the things, it's, like, the dialogue and the plot exists so that we can get to certain physical places and sets and have right. physical things happen. Yes. There are some sequences uh, that, as much as they might serve a story purpose, it seems very clear to me that the real, like, main point of creating that sequence and showing it to us was mm-hmm. showing off it it's it's the it is the thing itself it is it is the animation the point is to show you a gorgeous animated sequence mm-hmm. and whatever it's doing for the story is sort of secondary and like like the bento boxes right so the main example is the sushi making sequence mm-hmm. which is possibly the best part of this movie it's beautiful to watch but it's just that's it could be it it could be a short you know Mm -hmm. like that sequence could just be like a two minute short 
where the whole point of it is look at how amazing this animation is. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say this is more plot related, but I would say the runner up is towards the end, the um, kidney transplant. Oh my God. I was watching that today and I was like, why is this happening right now? Like the movie's <laughs> over. Yeah. Um, that to me is just like, just like look look at what we can do with this with this animation with this with these with stop motion and these puppets etc um and it is like um breathtaking to me mm-hmm. um but that's you know it, it, it that that's all that's that's the extent of it it's not, it's not breathtaking and oh my god what a profound you know. Yeah, I'm not like, wow, I'm so moved that this evil mayor has like given up part of his body for his literal ward. Like right. No, it's it's pure spectacle to me. Mm-hmm. And the the reason why this movie I I still enjoy watching it and and I I still I'm not going to rate it 5 stars, but but I'm I'm also not going to rate it, you know, 1 or 2 or 3 stars. Mm-hmm. Um, is is because I really enjoy that spectacle. Yeah. Um, and and there's there's as far as okay, so when Game of Thrones was still on, mm-hmm. um, I had this thing that I like to say because I like a lot of people, I had a lot of complaints and criticisms for Game of Thrones over the years. But um ultimately I was I was gonna keep watching and enjoying it to some extent um because in my opinion if you like game of thrones there's no other game in town yeah there's there's <laughs> oh game of thrones did something that you didn't like where are you going to go yeah. to get to where's the competition for game of thrones mm-hmm. you you're, you're going to watch vikings <laughs> no i'm not going to watch vikings <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, in in Isle of Dogs' category, there's like one other game in town, which is this um, studio. I don't know if studio is the right word. Production company mm-hmm. uh, called Leica. And they make uh, their last movie, I think, if I remember correctly, was the movie Missing Link, which I think nobody saw. I've never heard of it. And, um, but I think, they're also responsible for Paranorman. Okay, that and I saw, yeah. Maybe that movie Nine. It was just the number nine. And they might have even done Coraline, although I might be getting, um, I might be crossing wires. I know that here. Nine movie. That's with like the little creatures. Yeah, they look like Sack Boy from Little yeah. Big Planet or something like that. Uh, anyway, I've seen Coraline, but I haven't seen Paranorman. Um, I uh, I haven't seen Kubo and the Two Strings, which I don't know if that's a Leica movie, but that's it is. A, so okay. the, I have the um, I have it up. the The movies are Coraline. You're correct. Yeah. Which is great. Paranorman, which is fine. Never saw it. <laughs> um, the Box Trolls. Hmm. Kubo and the Two Strings, and then mm-hmm. Missing Link. Right. So I guess Nine is not on there. And I guess they... No, Nine is not on here. But I guess they also did 
some work, some contract work on Corpse Bride. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Also, a movie that I didn't love because it was gray. Yeah. <laughs> Which there, <laughs> there's a side note. We just watched this with Elliot. Yeah. And there's the Corpse Bride who is dead. And then there's a live bride to mm-hmm. be who is alive. And at one point, the Corpse Bride says something like, Oh, he's just going to go back to her and her rosy cheeks. And I was like, she looks more dead than you do. (laughs) Because it's like so, it's like so devoid of color. It's like not even devoid of color. It's devoid of contrast. Right. Yes. Contrast. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. They, they had that in their back pocket and they just left it there. (laughs) They were like, no, it's all going to. It's just going to be muted. And, Mm -hmm. but yeah, Kenny loves Corpse Bride, as I'm sure you can imagine. But, um. Sure. But yes, anyway, that seems to be what they have. I wonder who did do nine. I'll find that while you keep talking. Yeah, my point being that I'm not such a stop motion animation nut that I'm going to see every movie uh, that uses that type of animation. I've seen Fantastic Mr. Fox and I Love Dogs, not because they are stop motion movies, but because they are Wes Anderson movies. Um, But in theory, uh, I really like the medium Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that none of those Leica movies that you just listed are rated PG-13, mm-hmm. which Isle of Dogs is. So when you add that to the criteria, there's no other game in town. There is there is no direct competition for Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Um, and that automatically kind of puts it on a higher pedestal for me Mm -hmm. because it's like, I really enjoy the spectacle of this movie. It's, you know, it's not like Avengers Mm -hmm. where like, if I want that type of spectacle, I not only have 22 other movies that are in the (laughs) same universe, but I also have hundreds of copycats Mm -hmm. and things that are basically look the same, but often worse. Or things that are, like, maybe not within the universe, but comparable, like right. the X-Men movies. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Comparable uh, to to that level of spectacle. There's the, there's nothing that I'm aware of um, that, that is comparable in that visual spectacle category mm-hmm. um, to uh, I Love Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, really quick, Nine was put out by Focus Features. Ah, and yes. it came out on 9-9-2009. Uh-huh. And starred my fave, Elijah, Elijah Wood. Wood. Yeah. So maybe never, I need to see this now. I've never seen it, but I do remember that for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, that's those are all really good points. Do you just want to talk about Japan? <laughs> Why don't do you, you just want to do it? <laughs> like just now and then we can talk about like the rest of the movie. Why, why, don't, why don't you start? So you said, you said like the Japan thing brings up a red flag. And the reason, what do you mean by that? I'm not asking you. I'm saying, you know, what is meant by that? And I'm, I'm is, referring to, as you know, but yes. you're going to make me say it. Oh, no, I was going to say we're doing it. I was a just podcast. Asked, I was going to oh, say it. Oh, you, I, oh, you were speaking rhetorically. Okay, yes. go, go ahead. <laughs> so, so the red flag, what does that mean generally? Um, the, the, what does that mean is that it, this came out in 2018 yeah. and 
we are now in a place where we are asking questions like who gets to tell what stories? Right. Because for essentially forever and including now, the people who told the stories were white. They were often men. They were usually straight. Um, and that meant that a very specific kind of story was told over and over and over and over again. And when you have a story that's based in Japan, you have to wonder, well, why is Wes Anderson, who is very white, sent like white, like maybe the whitest person? <laughs> why is he centering himself this mo- and this movie in Japan? Um, but then he does like a bunch of weird things that I feel like in his mind addressed that. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things. Oh, and also, I feel like it's worth mentioning, and I don't have this up right now, but I, I didn't look at many makings of stuff, but when this movie first came out, I was like, why did he make this? So, he was in Britain, yeah, and he had seen an exit sign for the Isle of Dogs, which is a place in Britain. Yes. Which I would just like to say, you know, I know all about being inspired by an exit sign and then naming my whole project after it. Um, so, I really did emphasize with that. emphasize um um empathize Mm -hmm. um and that's in britain though britain and then he just was like i really like japan (laughs) so can i can i step in here for a second please so last week i wanted to talk about grand budapest hotel uh in comparison to life aquatic because of the Mm -hmm. genre and this week, we have to talk about Isle of Dogs in comparison to the film that came after Life Aquatic, the Darjeeling Limited. Yes. Because of cultural context. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lo- uh, many times the question has been asked, why set this movie in Japan? Mm-hmm. And the answer is so dissatisfying that the question keeps being asked. Yes. <laughs> But it has to be said that the correct answer, albeit not a satisfying one, is that this movie is set in Japan for the same reason why Wes Anderson made a movie in India. Mm -hmm. When he made the Jarjeeling Limited, he did so because he loved watching Indian movies. Mm -hmm. Dude watches a lot of movies. (laughs) Yeah, he does. Like a lot of directors, like a lot of filmmakers, like a lot of film buffs, he loves to watch Japanese movies. Mm -hmm. And he is in a position where he can do basically whatever he likes and whatever he enjoys on that level, Mm -hmm. he channels into the work that he makes himself cultural appropriation be damned Mm -hmm. um he said uh in interviews that the two main cinematic influences on isle of dogs are miyazaki and kurosawa miyazaki he said it okay I understand. So, yeah, let me just 
let me just tell you what I think he means. Please go ahead. Yeah. Which, which is, I, I think that you are questioning that because you are looking for like a clear line connecting the dots between Miyazaki movies and Isle of Dogs, which I yeah. don't think that you're going to find a significant resemblance. Yeah. I, I think, think I'm also just thinking like, my first thought was like, okay, well, part of the reason I love, when I was talking about animation style, mm-hmm. I mean, Miyazaki is it, right? Right. That's like bright. But yeah, then the also, the, the thing that I think of secondary to that is with Miyazaki is that his characters are, there's a lot of women characters. He writes a lot of women. Right. And then also the stories, like the morals are always, am- not ambiguous, but like people aren't cut and dry, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Villains oftentimes are overcome and become allies. Right. Um, people who are maybe allies sometimes become villains depending on what their goals are. And if those goals conflict, I'm thinking specifically of like, not, uh, not Nasca. Um of uh mononoke mononoke princess mononoke yeah yeah all i take all your points they're uh accurate and and well stated the point being i think that wes anderson never set out to make a miyazaki type movie or kurosawa type movie Mm -hmm. i think that he would say that those were his two main cinematic influences because of all the Japanese movies that he's enjoyed watching, the two main Japanese directors who sort of rise to the surface are Kurosawa and Miyazaki. Therefore, Uh they have the most influence over his decision to want to make his own movie which was always only going to be a Wes Anderson movie Mm -hmm. set in Japan. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, you obviously uh, are quite knowledgeable about uh, Miyazaki. Thank you. Uh, What, 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 what do we know about Kurosawa? Um, Less. (laughs) Have you seen any (laughs) Kurosawa movies? I don't think I have. Okay, so I thought I hadn't. And I, I, but I feel like I have read a lot of where people saying this is, this is the line, right, to Kurosawa. Right. I think if you, if you pay any attention to the history of film, to what filmmakers say about the films that inspired them, you, you can't help but hear Kurosawa's name mentioned often. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I've had a vague interest in watching his movies, um, because I've heard those things and, uh, I thought, uh, oh, maybe I'll watch my first Kurosawa movie because I was doing this research into Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Um, I, uh, have HBO Max, which I, uh, love, especially for its, uh, uh, sort of relationship with the the Criterion Collection and, mm-hmm. and Turner Classic Movies. And they have several Kurosawa movies. So I looked up uh, which ones they had. And then I remembered, oh, I have seen one of these. It was in high school. 
Um, because in high school I had like one and a half film classes and we watched Rashomon. Okay. Are you familiar with Rashomon? No. The thing that I always know, and I just checked this so I didn't sound like an idiot, but the thing that I know of that everybody always brings up is Seven Samurai. Right. And we'll get to that in a second. And I'm, yeah, I'm sure, I, but I know that there are other things. What is the movie that you saw? What is that about? Rashomon is from 1950. It was the first one of his movies to uh, bring him like not just success in Japan, but like international attention. Mm hmm. Um, and it's a movie uh, that was very influential about um, basically um, this will sound familiar to you. And if you've seen it in a movie or a TV show before, it was probably it was probably an homage or a parody of, of Rashomon. It's the same story told from several different perspectives. Oh, there there, there was there was a murder. Uh-huh. We the audience never see it happen from like the god point of view of the camera. Mm -hmm. We only see different people's accounts of what happened. And we see one after the other after the other and they all conflict in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a mystery which one is closest to what really happened. So, uh I uh, haven't seen that since high school. And then uh, we were looking at the other movies uh, of his that are on HBO Max. One of them is Seven Samurai. Mm -hmm. It's his most famous movie. That's a clear enough reason to watch that one mm -hmm. over all the others. However, do you know this about Seven Samurai? It is. No. It is three and a half hours <gasps> long. And so... <laughs> We haven't watched Seven Samurai yet. Uh, however, uh, just last night, we did watch a Kurosawa, a Kurosawa movie called Throne of Blood. Oh, that's a hell of a name. Yes, I think it's called, that's what that's what it's called in the Western world. I see least. that the sort of literal translation from Japanese is Spiderweb Castle, which okay. is also... A hell of a fucking name. <laughs> mm -hmm. A little more, a little more Vincent Price. Um, so uh, we watched this movie, and then the first thing Dana said when it was over was she remarked on how Shakespearean the story felt, mm -hmm. and I said I was I was thinking the exact same thing. I couldn't help but make that comparison myself. But I was also thinking to myself, and maybe because I'm watching it and thinking about it in the context of this Isle of Dogs conversation, um, I was thinking, is that just my me bringing my Anglo-centric education to this movie? And in fact, um, you can make that comparison, but there's there's no actual influence there. Be it's just a coincidence of comparison because maybe there's, you know, a rich tradition um, that uh, Kurosawa was, was drawing on in the mid 20th century mm -hmm. uh, to um, that, that just happens to resemble some things that me, the white, the, the ignorant white American with the Anglo-centric education, I, I just go like, oh, that's that's Shakespeare. 
right? Um, you already looked up Throne of Blood while I was talking about it, so you might know what I'm going to say next. It's like it says the film transposes the plot of William Shakespeare Macbeth from yeah. medieval Scotland to feudal Japan. It is an adaptation of Macbeth. <laughs> uh, but literally. bless you for being so self-critical of your oh, thought processes. Thank you. Yes, I only said that <laughs> to get a nice pat on the back. Um, yeah, and it, it just so happens, speaking of my uh, Shakespearean Anglo-centric education, Macbeth is one Shakespeare play that I have neither read nor ever seen like any kind of production of. So I recognize the themes as Shakespearean, but I didn't yeah. recognize the actual plot. Macbeth is the one where she says, Lady Macbeth says, a little bit of water will wash this from our hands, I think. It must be. Based on the movie I just watched, yes, I think <laughs> that's probably true. I referenced that in um, Ashley Sugar Notch. Oh. There's a, there's a poem called The Wolf and the Little Bit of Water. Oh, it's the last poem. It's the poem where he murders her, and it's called The Wolf and the, and the Little Bit of Water. Oh. Neat. See? It's all connected. <laughs> so um, real quick, just one more thing about Kurosawa. Um, I think on this podcast before, we've talked about Everything is a Remix, the video essay series by mm -hmm. Kirby Ferguson. And episode two is about the movies, and uh, it's mainly about Star Wars. And so uh, watching that video was how I was first exposed to, oh, okay, um, George Lucas was very influenced by Kurosawa and Seven Samurai, and there's a lot of references in Star Wars to that uh, work. And so uh, if Star Wars is indeed, you know, the most influential film uh, of like the past half a century, um, then uh, some of that is owed to like uh, Flash Gordon, uh, Buck Rogers. Um, some of that is owed to, uh, in no small part, to Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. um, and also, for example, uh, there's a, a famous Western called The Magnificent Seven, Yes. The Magnificent Seven is just is a remake of Seven Samurai, uh, but with uh, gunslingers in the American West instead mm -hmm. of samurai in feudal Japan. So, uh, yeah, the the ripple effect is uh, hugely significant in the history of cinema. So uh, for Wes Anderson to say that Kurosawa is, you know, part of the DNA of Isle of Dogs, um, it's no surprise. Um, we, we've invoked Tarantino several times in the past few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, Tarantino would certainly say the same about the influence of Kurosawa on his own work as well. So, yeah, that, all of that is just a, a sort of tangent to say... Uh, loving Japanese movies is the reason why Wes Anderson would make a movie in Japan. Yeah, he did it because he liked it. <laughs> yeah, and he wanted to. And by the way, not only has he, you know, been able to make his projects, you know, for many years, but also this particular one just happens to come after, we didn't really mention it last week, the fact that 
Grand Budapest Hotel is his most successful movie to date. Yes, by like, a, he made so much money off that movie. Yeah, so I think it's not a coincidence that in the aftermath of that success, that this is the movie that we get next. A movie, yeah, which a is movie clearly that, a, more of a passion project again. One of those crazy passion projects that uh, they love to talk about on the Blank Check podcast. Um, it's, uh, it's a movie that for a number of reasons, people, uh, might've said no to. Yeah. Um, but clearly he did not have as many people saying no to him in the wake of the success of Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about like the things that he does in this movie, because I don't, I don't think this movie is racist. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and the people who are Japanese who have written about this movie have written about it. It's when you look at them collectively, it's pretty mixed. Yeah, it is mixed. I would say that that's accurate. Um, so, you know, this is one of those situations where like we need to be critical as white people of what we're seeing and why we like something. But also we need to like champion the voices of the people who this is actually, you know, their deal. Right. Mm hmm. And so um, in this case, their deal is, you know, they are like Japanese people or people who have Japanese heritage. Right. Um, and so something that – so here's the – okay, what's the order in which I want to do this? Wes Anderson did a split mm. where the people who speak English are either the dogs or they are white people for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, and the people who are Japanese, uh, are Japanese people and they are mostly speaking Japanese, um, with some exception. Mm -hmm. So like Yoko Ono is in this movie. <laughs> Playing. You know, Yoko Ono. Yes. Her character's name is Yoko Ono. Her, and she even at one point has like a little, oh, what is it? It's like not her lapels. Like it's, oh, it's her. She has like little labels on her braids or something that mm. say Y-O. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, she speaks in English. She also speaks in Japanese. So he, which is to say that Wes Anderson wasn't stupid. He was like, if I need to, if I want to make this movie in Japan, and now it's 2018, I need to make sure, and just because it's animated doesn't mean I can just put my my faves into these voice roles mm -hmm. um i need to have a diverse cast that is going to represent especially when the people who are speaking i'm saying are japanese um i need to make sure that they are in fact not white people yeah the one exception to this go ahead maybe hmm. is the translator uh, -uh. the interpreter huh? the interpreter the interpreter is voiced by Frances McDermott, but I couldn't tell if she was supposed to be Japanese or not. Oh, I assumed that she was supposed to be white. Okay. I, I couldn't tell. And I feel like that in and of itself is a failure. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. She almost looks like, and this just is like one of those things that just at some point it like doesn't matter really, but like she almost looks like she's like half Japanese or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, which is to say like, I can't, I can't tell the way they're coding her. Yeah, they she's might speaking have. speaking English. Mm -hmm. 
but they they might have designed the character with some ambiguity in mind that ambiguity did not make its way to me but i can uh see your perspective and admit that yeah it, it might it might be there like they could have given her just much more like european centric yeah. traits like they could have given her like more chestnutty brown hair instead right. they gave her like black hair uh-huh or very dark brown hair right um so i think that that's like good right like that's a good base sure <laughs> um let me read to you this is an article um called how do you solve a problem like isle of dogs from rolling in stone which rolling we'll put stone, in the show yep. notes and um i'm glad we read different things oh good wait are you being sarcastic because you also read this no, I was I I did not read this one. I I I was half reading it, skimming it, like right when we started this call. I did okay. not get around to actually reading this one. This person says, um, is talking about this thing that I've just talked about, and he says the dogs speak recognizable movie star ease. The human residents of Megasaki City, however, they are not burdened with the sort of heavy accent and pigeon English that often passes for quote unquote foreign in movies. Good, right? That's good. We don't get caricature in that sense. Uh, but then he says they are not blessed with being deciphered or understood either. And that's because things are only, things are not translated for us all of the time. Mm-hmm. So we have this interpreter, played by Frances McDormand, who translates some of the sort of news um, press conferences that are happening. Right. We occasionally get um, some, and there's a note about this at the beginning. Do you remember what the note says? I remember it ends with all barks have been translated into English. Yes. It says, like, it's not going to be translated unless, like, there's an interpreter or sometimes they translate some of the text for us. Yeah, um, it also says sometimes there will be subtitles. It it doesn't mm-hmm. say that in that many words. But by the end of the film, there is at least one scene where the way that we normally would or the way that we normally expect from a movie with a foreign language for an English speaking audience, we just straight up get subtitles and they don't have like a diegetic source. Yes, exactly. I'm thinking um, of the hospital scene, if, if specifically, if that wasn't clear. Right, yeah. Um, so this person says, there are differences between Japanophilia and Cinephilia, just as there are differences between paying tribute to a foreign culture and using what you've gleaned about a country from watching its movies as some sort of exotic j- backdrop. And therein lies the problem. I love so much an Isle of Dogs. I am moved by it. So why do I find myself cringing so hard at the way it reduces an entire nation's history and character to an equivalent of an album's deep cut? Yes, it's easy to read what Anderson and co are doing as an homage to this hermetic to his hermetic ideas about the land of the rising sun rather than a racist orient orientalism caricature along the lines of say those old Fu Manchu movies of the 1930s or Mickey Rooney's Bucktoothed Landlord from Breakfast at Tiff- Tiff- Tiffany's it's a little harder to acknowledge that there's a touristy tone deafness that comes as part of the package, harder but necessary. You don't get one without the other. And that, I feel like, pretty much sums this up, right? It's not It's not that this movie is like, oh, it's racist, right? And it's not that he's necessarily... 
I think in his mind, he was like, I'm just going to let the Japanese sort of stand as a way to, like, represent that there are things that I don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. But the other way that you can interpret that is, okay, but if your audience is mostly white, you've essentially taken the voices away from those characters. Like, if your audience is mostly white and English speaking. Right. Now you've also taken agency from those characters because we can't understand them and you're not giving us any way to. Right. Unless you find it totally necessary to the plot. Yes. Did you read the LA Times review of this movie? If I did, I didn't read it today. It's called uh, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs is often captivating, but cultural sensitivity gets lost in translation by Justin Chang. And the uh, important quote that I think is easy to pull out of this review, which is relevant to what you're saying, is as follows. Uh, The dogs, for their part, all speak clear American English, which is ridiculous, charming, and a little revealing. You can understand why a writer as distinctive as Anderson wouldn't want his droll way with the English language to get lost in translation. But all these coy linguistic layers amount to their own form of marginalization, effectively reducing the hapless, unsuspecting people of Megasaki to foreigners in their own city. Um, And then he goes on to talk about the Greta Gerwig character and uh, the presence of Yoko Ono. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the in, an interesting question to explore, perhaps, is what is the, if this movie must exist, and it must exist in the state that it starts from, which is that mm-hmm. it's made by Wes Anderson, but it's set in Japan. It has uh, speaking dog characters, and it has native Jap quote unquote Japanese. I put native quote unquote because, you know, Megasaki is not a real city and you you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um Japanese uh human speakers. Um I think maybe an interesting question to explore is what is the version of that that would would work the best and and be the most effective but also the most comfortable and the most sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to point out real quick that the, the, just for, for more context on the subject of the languages, as you said, we get, um, most of the translation that we get is from interpreters who are present because the characters are, are in like press conferences. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when we who don't speak or understand Japanese don't know what the characters are saying, uh, mostly that takes place on Trash Island Mm -hmm. when Atari is the only human there and there's no one to translate for him or Mm -hmm. interpret what he's saying. And those scenes are mainly from the dog's perspective. Yeah. And I many people who have seen this movie have pointed out online, so I'm just repeating what they've said, that it seems that the point of this is to evoke what it is like to be a dog. The, the assumption is 
that the audience member will be English speaking and won't understand Japanese. And that is like the way that a dog cannot understand human language. Yes, absolutely. And that's why the least translation occurs in the scenes where it's just the dogs and Atari. Mm-hmm. When we go back to Megasaki, there are no dogs there. Mm-hmm. And we get plenty of translation and plenty of interpretation. On that note, there is, I do want to read this, and this is just from Wikipedia, um, quoting a New Yorker um, review. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to bring this up because, like you were just saying, that with the, like, you know, it it's like we're the dogs since we're the English speakers. Right. Um, this person, um, which I might not pronounce uh their name right i can't figure out this person's gender from this um moeka fuji it says uh moeka fuji wrote a favorable review complimenting the film's depiction of japanese of the japanese and their culture as well as pointing out that language is the key theme of the movie and so fuji wrote anderson's decision to not subtitle the japanese speakers struck me as a carefully considered artistic choice Isle of Dogs is profoundly interested in the humor and fallibility of translation. Uh, this is the beating heart of the film. There is no such thing as true translation. Everything is interpreted. Translation is malleable and implicated always by systems of power. The film shows the seams of translation and demarcates a space that is accessible and funly, funny only to Japanese viewers. And one might then extend that to Japanese-speaking viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... This person continues to say, um, at a climactic moment, the movie rejects the notion of universal legibility, placing the onus of interpretation solely upon the American audience. This is a sly subversion in which the Japanese evince an agency independent of foreign validation. Indeed, to say that the scene dehumanizes the Japanese is to assume the primacy of English of, the, of an English-speaking audience. Such logic replicates the very tyranny of language that Isle of Dogs attempts to erode. So here you have this 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 thing where there are some Jap- people, Japanese people, who are saying, you know, this movie is in some ways um, silencing these voices. Yeah, and, and then I, you have this other person. I just want to I just want to oh, just say real quick the. People were reading experts from not all of them are Japanese and not no, all of them are sure. Japanese American. I've read I've read but, multiple reviews of this, and this person yeah. is Japanese, right? At, uh, at least um, culturally. Um, and then you have this person saying, "No, no, 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 no! It's actually that exact same thing that seems bad is actually a good thing." So I don't, which is to say, I don't know where I land on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's worth bringing up, and I think, again, this sort of gets back to the question that I can answer, which is, um, who gets to tell these stories, and is this movie fine? Is this maybe, like, maybe one of the best versions of somebody writing about Japan who is, in fact, a white person from America, from Texas? Maybe, um, but maybe that version doesn't need to exist at all. Right. Yeah, I think that that's why this conversation is as complicated uh, and nuanced as it is, mm-hmm. because uh, this is, in some ways, a really sophisticated movie. Yeah. And in other ways, it is easy to read it 
as tone deaf and not sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And it's really, yeah, walking that line. Uh, And um, I'll say, like I said before, I'm, I'm in the American English speaking, can understand Japanese position that was intended for the audience member in order to you know, identify with the dogs, the dogs mm-hmm. who speak English and can't understand Japanese. Um, for me, there, there's a, there, I, there's a lot in this movie that I can recognize, oh, to someone else with a different background in a different position, this might be cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's exactly one thing in this movie that for me personally... It's a little bit cringe. Is it Tracy? It should be. It really should be. Cause <laughs> what is I it? It, it's the haiku. Oh yeah. It's it's the way that the haiku is made into like a joke format. Mm-hmm. With like the two lines and then the and then the third line is the punchline. Because yeah. it's because it seemingly has nothing to do. With the first two lines, it's just an, an image from nature. It is the same. It is exactly the same as a joke that has been made several times on Game Grumps, oh. where they like spitball a haiku, and the last uh-huh. line is always them saying, "It's snowing on Mount Fuji." Yeah, um, which in the context of Game Grumps, I've laughed at and enjoyed, but if you're making a motion picture. And your sense of humor is the same as, <laughs> like, the way that they're bullshitting on Game Grumps. I think you, yeah. can, you know, reflect on that a little bit <laughs> and try to elevate um, what you're doing. Not to say that I think it's totally wrong or totally ineffective. Like, yeah, I I like the the part where Atari says the haiku and the cherry blossoms fall and the dogs turn to skeletons. I like it, but also at the same time, I like it while I'm sort of cringing a little bit at the, at the, at the joke structure. Tracy, as you said, is also cringeworthy. Um, she's a, a white savior character. And, um, and did, weren't you the one that told me that? Cause she's voiced by Greta Gerwig. Yeah. And weren't you the one that told me that there have been jokes made that were like, mm-hmm. has Greta Gerwig ever seen someone who isn't white? Right, yeah, yeah, as, yes, uh, that I have invoked that before, and so which yeah, is it is which I bring up because it makes it even more funny, not in the way right. that they intended that she's right. the person voicing this white savior character. You're exactly right there, and and there's not one but two examples of that. It is it, for for a sassy sort of you know armchair critic uh, like myself, it is absolutely chef's kiss. That not only does Greta Gerwig play that character, but also Scarlett Johansson is in this movie. <laughs> right. Which I had of said last week. Yes. Oh, Scarlett Johansson couldn't be in one of these movies. And I She's still stand by that. <laughs> I still stand by that because I was we were coming at this from the position of like, well, George Clooney could only be in Fantastic Mr. Fox because it was animated. And Meryl I think Street. that that's true here. Mm-hmm. She could only be in this movie because it was animated. Okay, so you still maintain that she could not be on camera in a Wes Anderson world. 
Yeah, unless she was playing a very small sort of cameo stunt cast cameo style part yeah fair enough i'm not sure if i agree with that one but that's fair enough um so to recap we've talked about uh george clooney meryl streep brad pitt tom cruise leonardo dicaprio scarlett johansson uh nicholas cage all people who would uh break the illusion um, I'm wondering if we could just take a fun diversion for a Please. moment. Oh, that's, that's actually all I have to, not all I have to say on that. I'm sure we could talk for the rest of this, but like, I feel like that pretty much covers it. And that's, I was sort of that's hoping. Some, to- I mean, as I said, very complicated, very nuanced conversation worthwhile. That, that sums it up in a, in a perfunctory sort of a way. And um, I want, I wanted to sort of quote unquote start with that we're an hour and 25 minutes into the podcast <laughs> but i wanted to i wanted to talk about that earlier because i wanted us to be able to end on a little bit of a lighter note sure. um since this is the last feature film we get to talk about that's so right. that's absolutely right so um we have the ongoing list of of people who can't be in a wes anderson movie and we also have our thoughts on who should be and who we would like to be Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any any new names to offer up in either of those categories? You know, I knew you were going to ask me this earlier, and then I thought, "Oh, my brain hasn't been at a functioning level." Yeah, it's it's been a week <laughs> where you you might have not been thinking about that sort of thing, and that's understandable. Yeah. Um, let me say uh, just a little bit about who is in this movie, um, including. Uh, I'm talking about the cast of of dogs here. We already mentioned Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Our our sort of pack is uh, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Bob Balaban, Jeff Goldblum, and starring Brian Cranston, which is cool and wild, but like absolutely fits. Well, it's it, the thing is is that it's it's a very interesting example of typecasting. Uh-huh. <laughs> because you wouldn't think that Bill Murray playing a talking dog in an animated, did I say Bill Murray? I meant Brian Cranston. You wouldn't mm-hmm. think that Brian Cranston playing an anim, a, a talking dog in an animated movie could be an example of typecasting. And yet mm-hmm. it is very clear to me that Breaking Bad is the reason why yes. Brian Cranston plays this character when uh-huh. in particular when he's yelling at them and and in particular when he yells stop licking your wounds <laughs> like that is just 100% the recognizably the voice of Heisenberg uh um, yeah. yelling um so uh that is uh an interesting and top notch choice in my opinion and it got me thinking how, uh, exploring the possibility of like okay what if he worked with Brian Cranston again and what if it was on camera and not voice acting through animation next time? I think that possibility is on the table and should be on the table. Mm-hmm. I think it could work and I and I uh, would love to see it. And I, I sort of started digging deeper down to Breaking Bad well and thinking to myself, well, could and should Wes Anderson work with Aaron Paul? To which I would say, yes, no. I think that would be interesting. <laughs> no, he's too sloppy. Uh, I I want to see it. I, I think it look it would be it would be against type, and it yeah. Would, 
But I mean, so is like um, in the French Dispatch. Um, I thought about this. You were we were talking about Oscar Isaac last time. Yes. And and you were for, and I'm sort of against, but open minded yeah. enough to leave the door open. And then I was thinking about um, Benicio del Toro is in the French Dispatch. Oh yeah, he is. That's right. Uh-huh. And that just opens the door like wide open to yeah, possibilities sure. that I like never would have considered. Um, and uh, I think Aaron Paul is one of those. But more importantly, wouldn't it be great and very special? in my opinion, to see Bob Odenkirk in a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, that makes perfect sense. I will, yes, I will frankly be personally insulted if that never happens in, in my <laughs> lifetime, if I never get a chance to see that. Like how you say in my lifetime as if Wes Anderson is younger than you. <laughs> I, yes, that would, it would make more sense in that context, but yeah, and yet I, I stand by what I said. Um, yeah, uh, really hope that happens one day. And not to mention, um, while we're talking about Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, the, the, the I mean, like the reigning, multiple reigning kings of the deadpan are, mm. are both in both of those series. I'm talking about Jonathan Banks as Mike Ehrmantraut. Mm-hmm. And Giancarlo Esposito as Gus Fring. Ah, uh-huh. In particular, yes. I think it would be brilliant to see Giancarlo Esposito show up yeah, in a Wes Anderson movie. That that would make perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. I that he I could might play be like rooting a for that more than softer character. Mm-hmm. Like he could be a little. He could be sort of like um, Bruce Willising a little bit. I was gonna say like. Like a little bit like Danny Glover in the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I might be rooting for that uh, now that I think about it more more than any other. You brought up a Glover. Hmm. Uh-oh. I'd like to bring up the other one, Unrelated. Is this Which category is this going in? This is in the category of I don't think it would work, but I sure would love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. The in-between category. Yeah, Donald Glover just has real chaotic energy to me. Yeah, I don't... Where, and by chaotic, I mean, like, when I think of the This Is America music video, Mm -hmm. his ability to, within the same literal second, Mm -hmm. morph his face, it's like almost, it almost looks like claymation to me uh-huh. in that it looks like something or like a wave like it's like ebbing and it's changing so rapidly but so distinctly yeah um that it feels sort of scary to me and by that i mean like i don't it's so rapid and so precise that i don't know what to trust yeah like i don't know what his mood is right and that's why he feels chaotic to me yeah <laughs> and and i love him i saw him in concert a couple years ago and he was incredible um, did I ever tell you this? I think so. Did I tell you about the stunt that they did? I can't recall. So I saw him right around my birthday, I think two years ago. Um, Aram took me, which was very nice of her. And um, he was playing mostly stuff from um, his last album and not his like super early stuff. Mm-hmm. And he goes backstage and there's like video of him backstage like that they're projecting. This is at the Verizon Center, so it's like huge 
mm-hmm. arena. So they're projecting this video and he's talking to people and it's like they're coming up with a business deal. You would have loved mm. this. They're like, they're like, you know, motioning like, I don't know. And some dude's like checking a watch. Some dude's like checking a phone. Some mm-hmm. guy's like, you know, you know, putting his hand, hand to his face. And, and, you know, Donald's like, you know, gesticulating. And basically mm-hmm. it's like they're deciding if he's going to do an encore or not. Mm-hmm. Which like clearly he's going to do an encore and do yeah. his like really famous like earlier songs. <laughs> right. And then... And then, you know, we're like screaming more and more. I mean, the the theater of it was so funny. Yeah. But it was like the way that they were doing it backstage was like at the time objectively very serious. Like the mm-hmm. tone of it was very serious. It was only later that I was like, oh, duh, Liz, that was a whole bit. That was right. a bit. <laughs> yeah. That's a very funny bit. I would have loved to see that. And then he came out and everyone lost their minds and it was yeah. great. But yeah. I, yeah, I would love to see him in a Wes Anderson movie. I don't know what the fuck that would look like. Yeah, I would like to nominate Donald Glover for the uh, that would break the universe. This it could never yeah, happen. It probably would. <laughs> category. <laughs> um, what else uh, do you want to talk about uh, about I Love Dogs while we still have time? I loved. Um, I, I I was able to catch a lot of the um, details this time that I don't think I did the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, just like I know I mentioned all those little pieces of paper, like the, just the fact, like the fact that they, the thing that I hate is also something I simultaneously love, which is that they're on the, this trash island. So all of the sets are piles and piles of p- meticulously created junk. Yeah. Which I can't even imagine the work right. that had to go into that. Um, Even that one room that's made of all the glass bottles. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that's the most of all the of all the settings uh, of all the set pieces on Trash Island. The the sort of igloo made of glass yeah. bottles is the that's the that's like, the sort of mineral cavern or that's the um, cider cellar scene. The cider cellar, yeah. For this movie, yeah. I did also think he did something really cool and interesting in this movie, which was an improvement on Fantastic Mr. Fox. Do tell. Which I think you'll agree with me, mm-hmm. which is we know that we know that Wes Anderson loves a video of a TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and oh now my gosh, yes. The videos of the TVs are all animation. They're all like two-dimensional animation. They're not just the the stop frame animation on a TV set now. Right. It's like a totally different animation style. Yeah. And it's beautifully done. It's like beautifully, beautifully done. It's one of, yeah, it's one of my favorite things about this movie i'm so glad that you brought it up um i it make it what yeah it makes me very happy just how often they do that like mm-hmm. it, it it's not just like a you know there's this one scene where there's this in it's like throughout the whole movie it happens again and again and it and it looks amazing yeah it looks so good every time they even do one of the scenes very similar to fantastic mr fox where it's sort of a security room mm-hmm. um I don't think it's a security room in this scene. I forget exactly when this comes up, but it's like multiple TVs going at once. And so you get to see that really rich animation, but like happening on multiple TVs from multiple perspectives. Yeah. This Um, this is, sorry, you were not. Oh, I was going to say, they even do different things with like coloring. So like at one point Mm -hmm. you see something sort of in like night vision. Right, right. Yeah. um, uh, This is a, a good time as any for me to mention that, um, when they, uh, sort of when, when Atari and the dogs fight off the drones, 
Yeah. When he's like using his slingshot uh, the the most in the movie. Um, that scene caused me to turn to Dana and say, well, I guess it's very infrequent that we have an occasion to remark on the action in a Wes Anderson yes. movie. But yeah. I guess Isle of Dogs has by far the best action of, of any does, Wes Anderson yeah. movie, which and and it's really it's really well done. And then also on top of that, um, I feel like there's a very obvious Jurassic Park reference, which feels mm. very funny for Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is there a is there a glass of water scene that I'm not quite remembering? No, what is no. it? Oh, okay. The robot dog. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a dinosaur that I should know the name of that Kenny does and he's going to be annoyed that I don't remember it. In Jurassic Park, that one of the surprises when you're seeing that movie for the first time mm-hmm. is it's the spitting dinosaur. Oh, you're um, right, right. The spitting dinosaur like looks at that douchey guy who's mm-hmm. trying to steal the eggs or whatever in the shaving cream can. Mm-hmm. And I should know all these names and everybody is bad at me right now. And he hisses and then he has those like um those flaps that come up almost like a peacock or yeah. a butterfly, but it's like by his head. Yeah. And the dog, the robot dog, has the same thing happen. Right. With the robot dog, it makes even less sense. Yeah. <laughs> so that's but why it I feel sort like of, it has it sort to of be looks a reference. Like- Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I admit, yeah, it is a reference. It sort of looks like a satellite dish. Or yes. That's, like, that's where... That's, it looks yes. like it has a mechanical purpose. That must be why they have it, because it's this robot dog, and so it looks sort of like a satellite dish. But the way, specifically the way that it pops up, and it's like a surprise that that's right. happening, which is so funny to think about. I mean, like, that's one of those things where it's like, well, does Wes Anderson like Jurassic Park? Sure. Or did somebody animating this like Jurassic Park? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they. I'm sure that came up in the conversation about that design of that. Puppet. I'd like to. I sort of like to imagine a world where um, somebody suggested this for the puppet, and they love Jurassic Park, and Wes Anderson like somehow has never seen Jurassic Park, and he was just like, "Oh yeah, that's cool. It's like a. Uh, it's like a satellite." And the guy was like, "Yeah, it's like a satellite. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm doing it." <laughs> <laughs> like, like looking around and just like I, I got away with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think if, the, if the question is, has if it's a movie and has Wes Anderson seen it and does he remember it, the answer is probably yes. Yes, whatever, for sure. whatever for the sure. movie is. He's <laughs> he's almost certainly seen one thousand times more movies than than you and I, and then probably and I, has yeah, seen together every single one that we have. Yes, for sure. So yeah, those those things I think are working really well and are are really good and the action's really good. We also get to get that really fun like cotton dust. Yes, the again. smoke, yep. The explosions. There, um there's um and as far as I can remember there's there's one and only one needle drop of any note. Yes. In this movie which is the song I won't hurt you by West Coast pop art experimental whatever stupid long name that's impossible yeah. to remember band uh-huh. uh which is a a good song Kenny said to me how many capers does this add and I was going to say two It's got to be at least two And I was going to say the 
Well, also as a note, I love that the dogs all call him the little pilot. Yes, that's very good. Which is very sweet and feels very good. But I feel like him trying to get his dog back is one caper. Mm-hmm. And yes, then, that's the primary caper is is Atari going to Trash Island. And then it's Tracy and her classmates trying to uncover this conspiracy is like the second caper because there's so much like behind. But it's hard because it's like one of those things where like, do we count any smaller subset of those as like right. this is this is a great example of why we started doing a caper count, right? Because Wes Anderson loves capers so much yeah. that. Sometimes the whole plot is a caper. <laughs> right. There's It's similar to the Grand Budapest Hotel in that mm-hmm. there's so much conspiracy going on in, in the plot that to unravel it is to recognize like, oh, there this, this is comprised of many different threads. Mm-hmm. And you could take it as a whole and say like, that's a caper where you could take each one and like, oh, okay, the serum... The you know the flu itself is man made you know mm-hmm. the the poisoning the sushi the um uh bringing all the dogs back from Trash Island to Megasaki not all the dogs but several of them you know mm-hmm. um any one of those could be sort of like a mini caper but um, I think two is sufficient yeah. Do you have something else you want to say about favorites? Because I do want to talk about some of the other cast members that we didn't speak about. Well, I think that we, I think the caper count goes hand in hand with the dead dog count. Right. And I am curious if if you want to add any to that count because I think I think we add at least one. Sure. Because we've we there was one dog that we saw dead for sure. You're you're referring to the skeleton. Yes. Yeah. Sport. Sport. That's right. Yeah. Um, but maybe we could count two because we know for sure of one other dog that definitely died. You're talking about is, the one that was eaten. Yes. That's like we're only told about that one, but those two dogs definitely died. <laughs> yes. And I feel like the second one, even though we don't see it, it's described in such a horrifying way. And I think that there, I think I read that that there was a deleted scene from this movie, which is a flashback where we do meet that dog. <laughs> I think. Okay, so oh, let's Lord. let's say two capers and two dead dogs are being added to the yes. running totals. Now, um, uh, back so to keep the talking, cast. and I'm going to bring up the numbers. Oh, I have to keep talking. Oh, you don't have to, but well, you were going to say something about someone else in the cast. Well, I, w- I just wanted to bring up a couple of the other um, people who who showed up. Um, so we get some. We get Tilda Swinton again <laughs> as Oracle, the pug who also, can understand TV. And we also get F. Murray Abraham as Jupiter. Um, we get Harvey Keitel again. Yeah, I can't. Oh, he he plays the. I don't remember the name, but the head of the cannibal dogs, right? Gondo. Gondo. Yeah. And then um, we also... So Spots is voiced by Liev Schreiber? Yep. Um, who has not shown up before. He's a new one. And then she gets like one line total, even though her character gets a lot more screen time. But our fave from Moonlight's Kingdom, Kara Hayward, is in this as Peppermint. 
I know she's in the credits, but who is Peppermint? Peppermint is Spots's mate who has oh, the puppies. Oh, okay. But she really, she shows up a lot, but she really only has like one line. Gotcha. Yeah, I do. Where she basically says like, she says to Spots um, right after he's told about the cannibalism. I forget the name of that dog that they ate. Like it's something Fuzzball? like. Fuzzball? Fuzzball. I was going to say it has a Z in it. She's like, Fuzzball was his best friend, you know. Right. And like that's, I think she has like one other line, but that's like basically all of her lines. Yeah. Um, and Angelica Houston is in this, but I can never find her. Okay, good. I'm glad because uh, those <laughs> those in my, Angelica Houston and Cara Hayward, they were both in the same category in my head where I saw them in the credits. I did not know who they were. Um, yeah. I'm glad that you could shed light on the Cara Hayward question. But yeah, it's still a mystery to both of us. Um, Angelica Houston is credited as Mute Poodle. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I don't know if that, I don't know if it's just like a joke, like an inside joke, or if she actually is in the movie. Yeah. Kenny wanted me, I think it was George Clooney. Was it George Clooney who played a barking dog on South Park? Yes. Kenny wanted me to bring that up. Cool. Because... We had talked about how George Clooney could only be in a Wes Anderson movie because he was in animation. Yeah. And Kenny saw that as being parallel to the idea that George Clooney was on South Park as a barking dog with other dogs barking at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, like, you can't even pick his bark out of the barks. (laughs) You just are told it is there and have to trust it. And allegedly... I can't remember if we mentioned this last week, but I've read online... That in the shootout scene in Grand Budapest Hotel, where it's just a bunch of random people firing guns. Yeah. Allegedly yeah. one of those people is George Clooney, but I don't I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> I think that that might be just a rumor. Yeah. Um, but also, it's funny, Kenny wanted you to mention that because I had South Park on my mind for a different reason. Oh, please. Which is... Well, we already talked about it, but I wasn't going to mention South Park, but now it's come up, so I have to connect the dots. Uh-huh. We we already talked about the animation on the TV screens in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Dana and I were remarking on how good that looks and, and in a sort of how did they do that sort of a way. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think it may perhaps be a v- very sophisticated version of the way that they make South Park. Oh, that's interesting. I think it looks to me like, I don't know if this is how they did it, but it looks to me as if the animation process was like meticulously made and moved around like Mm -hmm. pieces of paper. Yeah, yeah. Layered on top of one another. That's interesting. That's just speculation. I didn't see, I watched some making of videos and I didn't see them mention that animation process once. Did... Did you know if they use the same frame rate for this movie or not? Oh, that's a good question. That was not in the IMDb trivia, which is where I learned that fact about Fantastic Mr. Fox. So uh, I don't Because I was going to comment that to somebody who does not know for certain, it seems like they're using the quote unquote regular frame rate for Mm -hmm. this movie. This Mm -hmm. movie seems smoother than Fantastic Mr. Fox. I agree. Um, Which is interesting that he made that choice for Fantastic Mr. Fox and didn't for this movie. Yeah. 
Um, I do know that. Do you know how much this movie cost to make? No, I don't. Off the top of my head. Let me it's see. It's not on Wikipedia, like in that little useful box. It just says that it made $64.2 million. IMDb usually has a place for this. But I'm wondering if they had more money for this one. And maybe they just didn't at 12 and I just, you know, I don't know what it looks like, so I can't tell. But Yeah, IMDb just says box office. I'm not seeing the budget in the normal place where it would be on one of these pages. Yeah, it's annoying. Like, why can't, where's the, give us the information, you know? <laughs> I think that that is uh, a mystery right now. Um, I will say that this is saying on Wikipedia that 20,000 faces and 1,105 animatable puppets were created by, quote, 12 sculptors working six days a week for the film. 2,000 more puppets were made for background characters. The detailed puppets of the main characters, so like the the close-ups of their faces, um, and I mean, I'm guessing of them, their bodies too, but specifically I'm thinking of their faces, typically took two to three months to create. So yeah, that's also wild. Yeah, it's a, it's like, a beyond comprehension. Amount so, of labor, yeah. Feet yeah. of, yeah, labor and creativity. But we know why movies cost millions of dollars at least when like that makes sense to me right (laughs) i get sort of caught up on how much it costs to make a movie because i know how many people are working on it but it also just seems like why would anybody spend that much money to make something (laughs) yeah and if it's you know if it's a big budget studio movie you know a not insignificant portion of that goes to paying the actors who exactly yeah they just to be in a in a movie, they can earn millions of dollars on their own. Do you have any favorites you want to talk about? Any favorites? Um, favorite scenes, favorite shots? I mean, uh, I already said that the sushi making sequence is probably the best part of the movie. I would agree that that's like my favorite like scene. And I said the runner-up was the kidney transplant. I want to say that the second runner-up in this category, which again, I, I will reiterate, I'm talking about visual spectacle mainly mm-hmm. for the sake of visual spectacle, and it is yeah. breathtaking on that level. The second runner-up is when they're testing the serum, mm-hmm. when it yes. goes through that like three or four step like yes. process in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, that sequence looks incredible. Yes. I also love when they put the serum into the dogs, how you get the like cross-section. Yes, yes. The, you know, sc- organ, the x-ray. Schematic. Vision, yeah. yes. That is also just like, um, did you ever see the bodies exhibit? Yeah, I think I did. I saw it in Philadelphia and um, I think it's traveling, but I think they have some permanent ones. And I think there's a permanent one in Philadelphia where the plast- it's called plastinization and they you know, replace all the water with like silicone or whatever. Um, I think I saw it. It reminded me of that specifically because it's like you can actually, it still has color and like shape and right. it's not just like an x-ray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which Wes Anderson has also done um, successfully in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. <laughs> um, I really, my favorite, I think like scene, like sequence of events is um, the part where, the dogs are on the uh, 
like the gondola. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a word for it. And they get split up. Yeah. Um, I find all of that to be very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And I really love um, Chief and um, Atari getting like to know each other and how Atari like gives him a bath and stuff. Yeah. But then also the scene where he's um, trying to decide if he's tall enough to go on the slide. The pagoda Chief, slide. The pagoda slide. And Chief is just like, you're not tall enough and this isn't safe anyway. We need to meet with them at the rendezvous. Like, mm-hmm. And he's just like putting his hand up and like measuring with his fingers. And then he finally does it. And of course, it's like a bad idea. It's not like, you know, he sort of tumbles. It's not like deathly or anything. Mm-hmm. But um that scene is really funny to me because I think we've been looking at this boy as being just so serious. Yeah. Um, and then we, I like scenes like that. You know, we talk about in Wes Anderson movies, like children being raised up to levels of adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things I always love is when Wes Anderson lets kids be kids too. And this kid getting distracted by this slide that he knows he's never going to get back to again. Right. Is like so true to youth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and i love i love that yeah you reminded me that um maybe my favorite moment uh in this movie on the level of a vocal performance is when atari uh breaks the dog treat and it breaks the puppy snap in half uh-huh. and uh holds it out to chief and the close-up on atari when he he whispers biscuito yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why. Don't like know he's why. trying to convince him. Yeah, yeah. It's just the way, yeah, the way that he whispers that is uh, just got me. Yeah, and I think something else that I really liked about, um, that I really liked from this movie that made me um, laugh that I thought was specific was like the little grimace that Atari does. Mm-hmm. Where he, every time he gets mad, he's like, <sighs> Mm-hmm. And his like little teeth, his little teeth are like his little, his mouth is so little and then his little teeth are little too. Yeah. I thought that was like a nice little detail. And I was trying to remember how they did teeth in Fantastic Mr. Fox because it's not the same mm-hmm. in the human characters. I the mean. human puppets. Yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, those are my favorites. Yeah. Just kind of on the other side of the coin, I just wanted to mention something that I observed that I think is an example of how kind of slapshod uh, this movie is on the on the story mm-hmm. level, and that is um, the 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 rest of the gang uh, besides Chief. Um, mm-hmm. I, I my observation was I think not the last time we see them because we get to see them you know in their new homes at the end of the movie. But I think the last time that any of them has a line of dialogue is when Edward Norton says, like, all in favor of kicking Chief out of the group. Uh-huh. And then they're sort of thrown from that cart into the, like, sluice water. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then like, the whole climax of the movie happens. Yeah. For, like, yeah. a while. And those four characters who felt kind of like they were main characters at the beginning are just like gone yeah they're just kind of forgotten about um and that to me was sort of indicative of like 
this movie just has like a lot of stuff, like a lot of ideas yeah. that are kind of like thrown together and um, taken all together. There isn't really like a, a coherence or, or a consistency to them. I, I had a similar critique, um, which is from the, like Tracy, when she's doing her like manifesto or whatever, she like suddenly she starts stumbling and she suddenly realizes she has a crush on the little pilot. Mm -hmm. But then the fact that they end up together at the end, like just feels so like, like the only, like, so, you know, clearly they meet when they're on stage or whatever, but it just feels like these two characters we both know, but like the little pilot knows nothing about her until he sees her on the stage. She like, doesn't know him at all. She just knows about him. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, I don't know why I had it in my head that she, like, that that group of kids was older than he is. Like, mm. they seem more like they're, like, 14, 15, 16, yeah. and he's 12, as we know. Right. Well, it, it I don't know if this makes any difference to your reading of it, but I, something that I learned from watching, you know, interviews and press and things was that Atari, the character, is 12, but the boy who played him was eight <gasps> when he recorded Atari's lines. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of age stuff going on here. Like Kara Hayward is playing the mate to leave Schreiber. Like that's one of those things that's, where, like, yeah, in animation, you can that's only do fine. that. Yes, when your voice <laughs> like, acting. I don't, I don't care about that. <laughs> no, no, it's not a problem. Um, but it is funny when you think about it outside of. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, it's like one of those things where like, yeah, it's a movie and yeah, that happens, but it just doesn't seem necessary to me at all. Like they mm-hmm. just could have not put that in there. They yeah. could have just not had that as be part of the movie at all. Yeah. And the movie wouldn't have suffered from it. Right. It doesn't even really gain. It only kind of gains like one joke. Which is she is translating for him or interpreting for him when he's doing his big speech. And he refers to her as this attractive student. And she sort of stumbles. Attractive cub reporter. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. And it's like, that's like not even that good of a joke. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's more of a character moment to me than a a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I, I agree. I agree with you with what you're saying. But you know what? Here's my feelings on Isle of Dogs. Here's how we can sum it up. Please. It exists. Yeah. If you like it, you can do that. Yeah. So you're not a <laughs> you're not a piece of shit for for liking this movie. It's, you know, you also don't have to like be in turmoil over it. Right. <laughs> Which is not to say people shouldn't have been critical. I'm just saying if you like it, you can like it. It's it's maybe don't make it your whole persona, no. but you can like it. <laughs> right. It's it's not the most harmful example of cultural appropriation yes i mean it it's we 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 talk a lot about the the phrase problematic fave uh, on this Mm -hmm. podcast i would not elevate it to the level of like favorite but it is like problematic thing that i really enjoy despite you know my ability to problematize it and and recognize the the sort of shaky ground that it's on But yes, at the same time, if it were at the level of favorite, and if you were to, you know, defend it with your life and not 
entertain those conversations about uh, its problematic parts, uh, then then uh, that would be a, a dangerous trap to fall into. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I was skeptical about this movie from the beginning before I ever saw it was I recognized that red flag that I mentioned earlier is, is not only just in a vacuum, the red flag of cultural appropriation, but it is also mm -hmm. in addition to that recognition of, in my opinion, one of the more embarrassing things that you could be is, mm. is, uh, for example, a white man who, um, has a couple of katanas hanging on his wall mm -hmm. or something that, you know, it, that, that sort of like, uh, kind of cringy, like, oh, okay, this, this white guy likes samurai stuff like a little bit mm -hmm. too much that that yeah. is like a part that that is like the the major part of his identity where his personality is like ah oh, <laughs> don't think you're supposed to do that everyone will is like literally like folding into himself and mm -hmm. like making his hands little tiny creepy claws yeah, and I'm, just looks very uncomfortable yes yeah, so i'm trying to to you know embody the the cringiness that i'm describing yes um, and as I as I say this, thank you for refraining from uh, describing my outfit. Oh yeah, for sure. Which is, uh, I just yeah, I didn't I didn't want the film to feel too embarrassed, and so that's why <laughs> that's why I got down uh, on its level, and uh, and I, I I wore my kimono for this record, <laughs> which is a perfectly fine thing. To own and wear around your house, and which I did not purchase, by the way, but no, was gifted was gift. to me, and it was a, a hand me down uh, yes. of a gift as well. Yeah. Now, of course, I wanted it, and and the reason I wanted it <laughs> is because of because I enjoyed Ninja Sex Party music videos. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, it's not part of a collection or anything. Yes. Is it? Is it the right length on you? No, I, no, I don't. If, if I, I don't know. I'm not even sure what the right length is. Is the right length like floor length? I, I think so, or like below the knee at least. It might be below the knee. Here, let me stand up. I think it might okay, be. Okay, I'll of, describe. Sort of knee length. So Will's um, standing up. Yeah. He's backing up. You, you can't, you can't see it, but it, it is below knee length. It's below knee length, he says. Yeah. It, okay. It comes down just below the knee, so it's it's not. I was thinking about this because it's I not know like fat guy gave... in a little coat, you know. It's not <laughs> like Tommy Boy. I was asking because I know that the person who gave it to you isn't as tall as you are, which is. I mean, you're not the tallest person in the world, but you're not averagely tall either. You're tall. Right. You're I, just I'm, I'm a, tall. I'm a quite tall person, and I got it yeah. from sort of an average tall person. Well, well, we got through all the movies. Yeah, so what are we going to do next week? So we are, at a minimum, mm -hmm. assuming that this is easy to do, which mm -hmm. I have not completely checked to make sure of that. Mm -hmm. But assuming it's easily done, at a minimum, we are going to watch the Bottle Rocket short film. Oh, yeah, you'll have to tell me where that is. <laughs> We're going to watch the Hotel Chevalier. Yes, and we're going to watch something that I don't remember how to pronounce. Huh? 
Castello. There's another short which is like presented by Prada. Mm, and stars uh stars jason schwartzman okay and that and i would also like to talk about even if you aren't familiar um the squid and the whale sure i i am familiar and i have seen the movie which i might not rewatch, but i've seen that enough times that i can i don't intend to rewatch that and and it's not a squid and the whale episode but no, but we, we exactly that's what I mean. Like I can speak enough about it to last like ten minutes. Not we will like an hour. we will make a little <laughs> bit of time for it at least. Yeah, and and we'll do other things too. We'll we'll uh, take a little time for some feedback and uh, maybe even play a game or two. <gasps> um, and uh, and we'll we'll make a plan for the future and and we'll um, just sort of. Uh, you know, speculate about the French Dispatch and when we might get to see it. I'm looking at Wes Anderson's IMDb now and the things that he's, he's listed as director for besides the features that we've already talked about. Bottle Rocket, short 1993. American Express, My Life, My Card, video short 2006. I bet we can find that on YouTube. Hotel Chevalier, short 2007 soft bank commercial short 2008 stella art stella artois lay apartomatic commercial short 2010 he would do a stella artois commercial specifically prada colon candy short 2013 castello or maybe casteo cavalcanti short 2013 that's the one Okay. That's the third one that, that I was one. really yeah. thinking of. And then Come Together, a fashion picture in motion, short 2016, which stars Adrian Brody. So Ooh, if we can find that dude. one. My assumption is that we're going to be able to find all of these on YouTube. Um, okay, cool. And so we'll try that. And if it doesn't work, whatever. Yeah, fine. Well, well, we did it, and I'll see you next week. See you real for soon. For our, our uh, closing remarks. For our wrap-up. Looking forward yeah. to it. Bye. Love you. Love you, too. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngest of one, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, ElizabethDeannaMorrisLakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs>